sense of mind emerge to distract us, to confuse us, to lead us into suffering. We find ourselves in that familiar place that we know as the hindrances. And these hindrances are archetypal and universal, as personal as they may seem sometimes, as identified with them as we may seem at times, as as familiar as they may be to us. We really can't lay claim to them, even though we may specialize in one or the other of of them at different times, and sometimes even have what we call a multiple hindrance attack. Um, Please don't take them personally. They're really quite archetypal. And of course, we don't just discover them on retreat. It's not like, you know, we we turn up here at Spirit Rock and there comes anger and greed. They're really part of our lives and learning to work with them skillfully is a huge part of our practice and our understanding. And I know, again, because this is an old student's retreat, most of you, many of you, all of you probably have heard the talk on the hindrances before. Um, So please forgive any repetitions that you may hear but at least I know when I give this talk that all of you can relate. It's not like, you know, when we're talking about Vitaka and Vichara or dependent origination or the five aggregates, you may be going, huh? When we talk about the hindrances, there's at least always a sense of connection. So I take refuge in that in giving this talk. (laughs) A few weeks ago here at Spirit Rock, a a group of teachers, uh, and I was one of them, did a series on the hindrances where we took Uh, a different hindrance each week and did an evening class. And it was quite interesting to do a series like that because normally when we do series, it's on things like the Brahma Viharas. And people think, oh yes, of course I want to go and learn about cultivating joy or happiness or, you know, kindness, well-wishing metta. Um, Doing a class on the hindrances was sort of, who's going to come? And it was more also a question of who's not coming. You know, I don't want to go hear about the hindrances, or I'm too sleepy to go hear about the hindrances. Or, you know, I imagine all the people who didn't come because the hindrances were present and they, they couldn't get it together to get, get to the class. So these five hindrances, these old friends that come to visit us with great regularity, the first is that of greed and desire, the force of wanting in the mind. The second one is aversion, ill will, in all its many forms of fear and boredom and judging. And then there's sleepiness, sloth and torpor, as it's known. The fourth one is restlessness or agitation. And the last one is doubt. Many, many suttas talk about the hindrances. I couldn't actually just pick out one to be the basis for this talk, but I've got many uh, quotes from the different suttas where the Buddha talked about the importance of working with these forces of the mind. In the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha used the analogy of a river to describe the effects of the hindrances. He said, suppose there were a river flowing down from the mountains, going far, its current swift, carrying everything with it. If a person were to open watercourses leading off from both sides, the current in the middle of the river would be interrupted, diverted, and dispersed. The river would not go far, its current would not be swift, and it would not carry everything with it. In the same way, if a meditator has not seen the nature of these five hindrances, there is no possibility that she can know for her own benefit, or for the benefit of others, or both, 
that she should come to realize a superior human attainment, a truly noble knowledge and vision, basically come to awakening. And, you know, we can really relate to this analogy of the river because in this very country, the Colorado River, because of all the water that's taken off, diverted for agriculture, etc., no longer reaches the ocean, no longer goes to um, the sea. The Buddha goes on to say, but suppose there were a river flowing down from the mountains, going far, its current swift, carrying everything with it. If a person were to close off the watercourses leading off from both sides, the current in the middle of the river would not be interrupted, diverted, or dispersed. The river would go far, its current swift, carrying everything with it. In the same way, if a meditator has seen the nature of these five hindrances, there is a possibility that she can know what is for her own benefit, or for the benefit of others, or both, and that she should come to realize awakening. And so this analogy um, illustrates how the hindrances take our energy, take the, the sincere intention that we bring to our practice and divert it away from what is our aspiration, what is our deepest wish for ourselves. And it goes to show how important it is for us to learn to work with them. Because if we don't, we won't have the energy, we won't have the ability to uncover that that is our deepest wish for ourselves. So these hindrances obviously can be the cause for tremendous struggle, but also valuable fuel for insight. It's important not to just see them as obstacles or enemies. They've actually been called the manure for enlightenment, you know, that fertilizer that everything needs to grow, to come to fruition. Because we all know, we've probably seen in our lives, that it's the most difficult places in our lives, the struggles that we have where we learn the most, where we actually grow, even though it's painful. And working with the hindrances can lead us to the profound understanding that it's not what we're experiencing that's important, but how we're relating to it. It's really um, an important thing to come to grips with in our meditation practice because we spend so much time wanting a certain experience, wanting calm, wanting concentration. And to come to realize that that's not what it's about. It's really about can we be present for whatever our experience is, far more important. Eugene Cash, who was one of the teachers of the hindrance class that I spoke about, said, told me that he began the class by saying he was the first teacher of the first class, by saying, as long as we can agree that there's no such thing as the hindrances, then we can begin to talk about the hindrances. It's a little, he has a Zen background, I think, it's a little bit of a koan there. <laughs> but I think what he was referring to is hindrances are only hindrances when we don't see them when they're operating and we're caught in them or identified with them, they're coloring our experience, when we're aware that they're present, when we know that they're operating, then they're no longer hindrances. We're mindful, we're aware of them. We can be as mindful of them as any other experience and we don't, they don't need to condition our next moment, our experience. So the first of these hindrances is greed and desire, the force of wanting. Guy spoke a bit about it in his talk on the Four Noble Truths. And it's that force of wanting in the mind that is the whole range 
of the subtlest tending towards to the strongest lust and passion that we can experience. It's operating any time we're beguiled by sense pleasures and objects. When it seems like those things, those sense pleasures or those objects hold the key to our happiness. And if we had them, if only I had them, or if things were a certain way, then we'd be happy. There's this separation between who we are and what we want. And we come to see once we start to investigate a little this force of desire that the object itself doesn't condition the strength of that wanting, the strength of the desire. And we can see, especially here on retreat, how the simplest things can become the object of very strong desires. It could be something like the right seat in the dining hall, you know, that looks out onto the trees, or your favorite walking path, or, you know, to have a cup of tea, you know, or time, time to get a shower when you want to take a shower. Little simple things like that. I mean, I'm sure even for you uh, on these first few days of the retreat, you've scoped out, you know, what's good and what's bad about this situation. And you know what you like and when you like to have it. And even though they're quite simple objects, it's interesting to look at the strength of that wanting that they can create in the mind. I remember some years ago being on a long retreat, a three-month retreat, and uh, I have a little bit of... um, a liking for chocolate, I have to admit. A little bit of a reputation, perhaps, for that. Even though I don't eat a lot of it, but I do like to have a little bit every day after lunch or after a meal. And I went on this retreat with a great deal of renunciation and said, I won't bring any sweets. You know, I won't bring three months' worth of candy bars on this retreat. Part of that was the impracticality. You know, how big a bag do you need to bring three months' worth of sweets on a retreat? But anyway went in with this great deal of determination. And I can remember so clearly now, I don't know, about two or three weeks in to the retreat, um, just being consumed, totally consumed by the desire for a piece of, you know, truffled chocolate. And uh, even now I can, I can remember that feeling in my body. It was so strong. It's sort of like, you know, when you see the cartoon with someone with a stick and the carrot that's dangling. I was out doing walking meditation. I, could, I, I just remember how much I was leaning forward and feeling it and wanting it. Now looking back, it's sort of amazing to me to realize that I could have that strong a wanting for just a piece of chocolate. But it, and I, I totally was not mindful of it. You know, I was totally caught into it. And it, it persisted for actually a few days. And it was only when it actually started to die down that I could look around and go, what was that all about? You know, that was, it was so visceral and so strong. The simple thing of just a piece of chocolate. Tanisaro Bhikkhu, who's a Western monk and a, and a, a scholar, uh, wrote this about desire. He said, There's a widespread feeling that Buddhism gives an unfair valuation of sensuality and is blind to the positive beauties of sensual objects. But this is simply not true. The Buddha admitted that sensual objects have their beauty and can give a measure of satisfaction. He pointed out, however, that the beauty of an object is not the whole story, for all beautiful objects must decay. If one's happiness is based on them, that happiness is in for a fall. More importantly, though, the Buddha defined sensuality not as the objects of the senses, but as the passion and delight that one feels for such objects. Although the objects of the senses are neither good nor evil per se, 
The act of passion and delight forms a bond on the mind, disturbing its immediate peace and ensuring its continued entrapment in samsara, in suffering. Only by separating the desire from its object can one directly perceive the truth of these teachings. And I think that's a very important thing to understand about desire. Only by separating the desire from its object can one directly perceive the truth of these teachings. And here in the simplicity of the retreat, we actually have the opportunity to do that because life is so simple. And there's not many objects around that we can actually lust after. I mean, there's enough, but they're they're fairly few. And they're usually fairly simple. And often we can't even have them, you know, when, if they're fantasies of the mind of something back home, or like me with my piece of chocolate. Not possible. You know, we, get, we take what's given, and that's it. So we can use the format of the retreat, the renunciation and, and the simplicity of the retreat, to work with this force, to see it manifesting, and watch what happens with those movements in the mind. And this, as I said, the simplicity of the retreat is a great format for doing this. Joseph Goldstein said this wonderful line that's really uh, stuck with me. He said, restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. And I think there's so, so uh, so many layers to that. Restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. No, to be here on retreat and watch a desire come up. Choose not to act on it and then see what happens to it a moment later, or half an hour later, or the next day. You know, as I said, like me with the chocolate, so what was that about? You know, that force of wanting to see that it doesn't have to be satisfied. Our happiness doesn't depend on that desire being satisfied. We can use our mindfulness to track this force of desire, to notice that first movement of mind that, you know, where the eye lights on something or the mind thinks of something. Oh, that would be pleasant. Oh, what about that? And track it to where, you know, unless we get that, we're just so frustrated. We can watch that progression and see how it's fed and also how it can be undercut, how with direct mindfulness that desire can perhaps be reduced. We can also use wise reflection. We can take some time to reflect on all of the objects we've ever desired. Now, that would be too much. Don't do that. (laughs) Pick a few, perhaps. All some objects that we've desired in our life, the ones we've gotten and the ones perhaps we haven't got, and really to, to see, to look, did they make such a difference to our qualitative level of happiness, to that deep level of contentment that is what we long for, where our home is? In the Dhammapada, the Buddha said, not even if it rained gold coins would we have our fill of sensual pleasures. Stressful, they give little enjoyment. Knowing this, the wise one does not cling even to heavenly pleasures. He is one who delights in the ending of craving, a disciple of the Buddha. And so we start to see that it's not the object that we want. It's freedom from the desire. It's the peace of mind that comes when that desire is satisfied. And with that insight, with that understanding, can begin to work more skillfully with this force in our lives. The second of these hindrances, these difficulties, is that of aversion or ill will. And whereas desire is quite a seductive 
hindrance. It's often quite pleasant. You know, it's, it's fulfilling. We have, there's a richness to it. Aversion is more obvious and often more difficult and more painful, though it has its own entrancement as well, its own form of desire that, that's captivating. But it's that feeling of not liking, not wanting anything in our experience, another person, a particular sense um, experience, you know, mind state, whatever it might be, even ourselves, it's often a common one. And it can be acute or chronic, you know, it can be a sudden onset of just aversion, not liking, or it can be really long-held and simmering. You know, we can chew on these aversions, these angers, like old bones. Again, in the Dhammapada, the Buddha spoke about the value of not holding on to these old angers, these old aversions, these old grievances. He said, Look how he abused and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live in such thoughts, live with such thoughts, and you live in hate. Look how he abused and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never yet dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. This is an ancient and eternal law. Knowing this, sorry, you too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? And Einstein also said, peace cannot be achieved through violence. It can only be attained through understanding. Here on retreat, aversion can arise in all of these different forms. Many of you being old students may have heard of what we call VVs, the Pasana Vendettas, where there just happens to be one person on retreat who seems to embody all that's wrong with the human race. You know, whether they're greedy or not so mindful or too sleepy or, you know, noisy or whatever it might be, you know, those qualities seem to be exacerbated. And it actually can be a very rich place to practice because here we are, you know, practicing mindfulness and there's this really strong object that keeps coming into our field of awareness. We don't have to interact with them. We don't have to be nice to them. We also hopefully, you know, don't have to be nasty to them. We don't have to have any relationship to them, but work with that experience in our own um, inner world, in our own relationship. And so we can, you know, have a safe place to work on this force of ill will, you know, to really see how it affects us, what happens to our mind states, to our body when it's operating, to, to see the answer to questions like, who's suffering when we're angry with someone, when we're critical of someone? You know, the person we're angry with or ourselves, especially when we're not communicating, you know, they don't know that we're harboring these feelings. They're going along quite happily. We're the ones that are suffering on this. Marcus Antonius said, Consider how much more you suffer from your anger and grief than from those very things for which you are angry and grieved. And I think that's so true. You know, it's actually the feeling and the state of anger that continues and that brings us pain much more often than the object itself. We start to see when we look at this force of aversion how much it colors our experience. When it's present, it's a filter through which we see the whole world. Everything becomes a source of irritability, a source of unpleasantness, becomes distasteful. You know, we just, it gets on our nerves, whatever, you know, and there's many different levels of how this can happen. 
Martin Luther King said, like an unchecked cancer, hate corrodes the personality and eats away at its vital unity. Hate destroys one's sense of values and objectivity. It causes one to describe the beautiful as ugly and the ugly as beautiful and to confuse the true with the false and the false with the true. It really has a distorting quality on our perception of the world and our experience of it. And just being able to see, see that working again is a way we can learn to become free of that force. There are many ways that this force of ill will or aversion manifests, things like boredom, judging, fear, and irritability, and depression and resistance are all different manifestations of this force in the mind. And ones you know we can start to work with here on the retreat. Boredom is one many of you may know as an old friend on retreats. You know, it's not very exciting here, you know, sitting, walking, the breath. That's pretty much all there is, and an occasional meal to liven things up. But boredom is just a lack of interest in the present moment. It usually happens when we're not connecting, when there's just not that ability to be really present for what's there for us. And it's sometimes helpful to look at what precedes that feeling of boredom. What, what, what was going on before that? Was there something we're stepping away from and not wanting to connect with? So there's often a subtle sense of aversion. <coughs> that can precede that sense of boredom. And and out of that dislike, we back away from our experience and we don't connect as well. But it's really helpful to learn to be able to continue to practice even when we feel bored because it's going to be an experience that we have. You know, it's, as I said, often not that exciting a practice. And to be able to bring some consistency and uh, virya energy when there's not a feeling of excitement or, you know, not that great sense of something is happening is really very helpful. It's also helpful to know whether it's boredom or calm that's present. Because, you know, often we can't tell the difference. We're so used to having a stimulating interior or exterior environment that when things settle down a bit, we look around and go, this is not very interesting. You know, this is boring. It's just nothing happening actually look, you know, if there's not qualities of aversion or disliking, it could be the quality of calm. It could be peace. There's a, you know, and it's, they can move between the two. And if there's connection, it's a very positive experience. The judging mind is one that many of you also may know of as, as an expression of this aversion, not liking, not wanting. For me, it's a very familiar friend that constant, constant cataloging of what's right and what's wrong about a situation, about myself, about a person, about the facility, about the food, you know, it's just endless what we can come up with to judge about, you know, some teachers often say, why don't you start counting them? And, you know, by the time you get to a thousand and one, maybe, you know, you'll be tired of it and let it go for a little, but it's sort of like that. It's so common for me anyway, for many of us I know, that we really have to learn to become friends with the judging mind. Because if we bring more aversion, more judging to that, we're really caught in an endless feedback cycle. So just to be able to say, oh, there you are again, you know, my old friend judging. Thanks for your opinion. I'm doing okay. You know, just let's get on with this here, is some, some ways the best way of dealing with it. Just acknowledging it with hopefully a friendly and accepting um, attitude can 
take the edge sometimes off that judging. Again, I remember being on retreat and being really um, depressed by the number of judging thoughts I had. You know, how just people would, someone would pass by my field of vision and something negative would come up in my mind about them. And I would go to my teacher and say, this is terrible. You know, I feel so critical and negative and judging. And he would, you know, give me words of encouragement and, you know, say the things that I've just said to you. And I'd go back and, you know, dwell on it a little longer. And then one day I realized there were all these other thoughts of judging that I was having that I wasn't paying much attention to, that weren't giving me these pricks of conscience. And they were the ones where I said, oh, you did that quite well. Oh, you're not such a bad yogi after all. Look how slowly you're walking, you know, whatever it might be, or, you know, how mindfully you took the, you know, all of those thoughts of how good I was, they were just slipping under the radar. And I was picking up, you know, the negative ones that had actually a sting to them. But the thoughts of better than are just as much judgment as the thoughts of worse than. And the Buddha even said the thoughts of the same as are also conceit or mana, are also thoughts of comparing. So it can get quite subtle when we start to pay attention to this judging mind. Fear is another form of not liking, of not wanting, that can often arise in our lives and in our practice. And it's, it's one that can be very important to become familiar with, to, to not be afraid of, to not be afraid of the fear, because it comes to many of us uh, in our lives and in our practice. So really to come to some relationship of understanding to um, the nature of fear can be very helpful in our practice, to really get to know what it feels like in the body. So we can say, oh, that's fear. It's this constellation of sensations. It's these thoughts in the mind. So we don't have to so much get caught up in the story that we tell ourselves that often feeds the fear. We really have, you know, can come to soften, soften and open a little to the fear, just gradually, whatever feels safe, but just to, to know it for what it is, as I said, this constellation of experience. And to find refuges can be really helpful to know what your refuges are if fear arises can be refuges like the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, you know, feeling the refuge of the possibility of awakening, of the awakened mind, or even a relationship, direct relationship to the Buddha. Sangha, the support of people here, you know, if you're off by yourself and feeling a little fragile to come into the hall and just feel the support of other people or to talk to a teacher. And the teachings, to take refuge in the teachings of impermanence, of, of all of those teachings that have meant something to you. And an, a great refuge too is nature, just to feel the support of the beauty and the connection that we can have with nature, you know, to commune with the turkeys for a little bit, to just feel how, how, how nature has its own processes and takes care of things in its own way. The third of these hindrances is that of sloth and torpor. And it's one of the ones that I happened to do uh, one of the hindrance classes on. So I had to spend two hours talking about sloth and torpor. I actually wondered how on earth I was going to fill up the time and also keep people interested and energized while I talked for two hours on sloth and torpor. I actually ran out of material because as a, uh, I often you know, used to just think of sloth and torpor as just sleepiness. But I think it's much more than that. 
It's actually that innovating feeling that just prevents us from connecting with our experience, with our lives, with with people, with whatever's going on. You know, it's that inertia that can build up where even though we know something is good for us or that we get benefit from us, we just can't quite be bothered. We just can't make that move towards it. So it it can be um, a very challenging thing to work with in our experience because that very fact of um, loss of energy is really hard to to, um, find an antidote for because nothing seems worth arousing the energy around. And it manifests in these sort of cloud-like ways around us. It's sort of like this soft, warm fog that descends, you know, of sleepiness and dullness. And there's this feeling we just pull it over us like this big, feather-filled comforter, you know, that we can just snuggle up into and keep the world at bay for a little bit, you know, not really contact things. It's this dreamlike state that can be very seductive because nothing can touch us in that. You know, we're safe, we're warm, and, and the, 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 the dukkha, the suffering, is not so uh, accessible. But obviously, it's very hard to be mindful in that state. Uh, An insight very rarely arises And this state of sloth, sleepiness, torpor is often present in the first few days of the retreat. It's really understandable when we come into a retreat out of the busyness of our daily lives, the stresses that we're under, the the, fragmentation of our energy. And we we come to this very quiet, tranquil place. And it's like putting on the brakes and screeching to a halt. And we just sort of fall into bed and it's hard to get out again. And it's quite natural to, to feel that way. And so I just have taken to working with it, just knowing the first few days, take some naps, you know, realize that sleepiness will be there and work with it as, as skillfully as I can, but not try to really push through it. But after a few days, um, when we've rested a little, we've had some time to, to recuperate, um, an excess of sleepiness can often be a sign of not wanting to connect of not wanting to be present. So it can be helpful just to reflect a little about why we don't want to be present. You know, look a little beneath the sleepiness. St. Thomas, a Christian saint, described sloth as sadness in the face of some spiritual good one has to achieve. And I think there's something to that, that there's in that sleepiness, that lack of connection, there is almost a depressive quality, a sadness to it. And we often get affected by this lack of energy here on retreat and in our lives. You know, I think it's known, there's been so many studies that most of us don't get enough sleep. You know, we're running on half empty. We're, we're really, you know, running on adrenaline and caffeine often a lot of the time. We work too hard, we're busy, and we're overstimulated, you know. And when, when we have that, that, those experiences of being overstimulated and overbusy, when we come to a place of quiet, of peace, whether it's retreat or just coming at home after work, the, the contrast between the two is so great that we immediately fall into states of apathy or sleepiness or dullness because we're used to that energy, we're used to so much stimulation. And when that intensity inevitably fades, the contrast is so great, we just zone out, we're not present. And so here when we're practicing, You know, we're used to the stimulation and there's just often not quite enough going on for us to stay connected, to be present, and we fall asleep. This kind of sleepiness can often occur when our concentration is not balanced with the energy. 
when the mind is beginning to steady, but there isn't enough energy, interest in the practice to balance that. And we can have this phenomenon we call sinking mind, which is when, you know, you feel fairly awake, quite alert, you know, there's some degree of concentration, and all of a sudden, boom, you know, your head hasn't quite touched the floor, but it feels like it sometimes. It's a really interesting uh, thing that happens, and it's, it's not quite sleepiness, it's, it's something different. But when this happens, we need to arouse energy. We need to do something to bring the energy up. So some th- simple things we can do to work with it. We can recommit to being present. You know, just be aware that sleepiness is happening and make a commitment to stay awake, to be mindful. You know, then simple physical things like taking a few deeper breaths, uh, stretching your arms up, sitting up straight, and, you know, making sure your back is straight. Stretching your arms up in the air, um, it's e- or opening your eyes and looking at the light can be very awakening. And doing standing meditation is a great practice to do. Much harder to fall over and fall asleep when you're standing. Not impossible, but much harder. Um, and it's actually, I love it when I see people doing standing meditation, because it means they're really motivated to work with sleepiness. And it's interesting how it's sort of like a popcorn effect when one person stands and someone else sees them by the end of the sitting, you know, there's a bunch of people standing. And it's great because, you know, you can practice standing. It's one of the four postures that the Buddha talked about practicing in. And it means we're being committed to being awake. So it's a great thing to do. And we can, in our walking meditation, we can take a brisker walk, you know, take some, some deep breaths of this wonderful, fresh fall air that we have around us at the moment. And another way to work with sleepiness is to actually make the sensations of sleepiness the object of our meditation, to actually turn the attention directly to that experience. And this, in some ways, is the most powerful way of working with sleepiness, but in other ways the most difficult, because as I said, it's hard to bring that level of clarity when the mind is foggy. But if you can do that, if you can actually focus on the the sensations, the experience of sleepiness, it's amazing how it can have an energizing effect on the practice. So you can try that as well. And the same with boredom. It's also important to appreciate the difference between you know, this level of sleepiness or slum dullness and the calm or peace. Because when we're not used to these qualities, you know, again, it feels like nothing much is going on. But that calm and peace are actually some of the highest qualities that the Buddha talked about cultivating. The fourth of these hindrances is that of restlessness. It's that mind that is worried or anxious, where it's running on and on and on. It can also manifest as physical agitation, movement of the body. And again, we come into the retreat, to the stillness of the retreat from this busy you know, world where we've been running around taking care of so much stuff, and nothing much is happening here. And some restlessness is a little natural. And it's amazing how quickly we can move between restlessness and sleepiness, you know, the, the two that seem so opposite are actually quite good buddies. It's when our mind is like a monkey, you know, swinging from branch to branch, never settling on anything, always dissatisfied, going from here to there. And it somewhat can be caused by this, again, the critical kind of mind, the fault-finding kind of mind, where nothing is quite right, not this, not that, always looking for some future situation that might be a little better, to, that's forever out of reach. And we can spin out fantasies the, the, in the, the mental sphere. The mind can just go on and on and on and never, never seem to settle. Just 
over, over and over the same thoughts. And in some ways, we just have to learn to accept some of these cycles of practice, you know, that we're not always calm and concentrated. Sometimes the mind just ha- is on this trip. And as much, you know, as much as we can, we just need to be present and accept that. Some of the antidotes are very similar to those for sleepiness. You know, take a few deeper breaths, recommit to being present, uh, take a brisk walk to, re- to expel some of the energy so that there's a sense that the body can become a little stiller and quieter. Sometimes it's helpful to be with a strong object, like just the sense of sitting. With the restlessness, it's really interesting to play with the focus of the lens, you know, the magnitude of the lens that we, the microscope that we put on our experience. Sometimes it can be really helpful or can really work to um, bring us into the present by being with very minute um, parts of our experience and really zeroing in and, and bringing a lot of interest to what's going on. Sometimes that can drive us crazy and we need to really back off and be very spacious and actually hold the whole body with the restlessness just a part of the landscape in a much bigger lens. So to play with going back and forth can be helpful. And we need to learn to balance this mind with one that's contented, you know, just to do some reflections on acceptance and patience and to practice with compassion for ourselves. We can feel the pain that often comes with this busy mind And just to say, you know, they're there, it's okay, you know, just this too, can we be with this? The last of these hindrances is that of doubt. And in some ways, it can be the most difficult or challenging hindrance, though I actually think that whichever one is predominant at the moment is the most difficult and most challenging. But uh, doubt is definitely a difficult one. And there's really two kinds of doubt that can come up for us. The first is what I call healthy doubt, or the great doubt. And then there's paralyzing doubt, or the small doubts. And healthy doubt is actually, can be quite good for us. It's that sense of investigation um, that really wants to know what's going on, what's this in my experience. It can be the, the questioning that brought us to practice, wanting to know what's this all about, you know, who am I? What's the point of life? Why, why do we suffer? What's going on here? So it can be a very motivating aspect of our practice. And uh, you've probably all heard of the Kalama Sutta, where um, a group of people were um, really befuddled by all the different teachers who would come to their town and say, do this, no, don't do that, don't follow that person. Do what I say, don't do what he say. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they asked the Buddha, and the Buddha said, it is indeed fitting, Kalamas, to be uncertain. It is fitting to doubt. For in situations of uncertainty, doubts surely arise. You should decide, Kalamas, not by what you have heard, not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to views that you prefer, not because it appears likely and certainly not out of respect for a teacher. When you would know, Kalamas, for yourself, that these things are healthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline towards welfare and happiness, then, Kalamas, having come to them, you should stay with them. 
So basically he said, look for yourself, what's being cultivated? You know, when you're given a teaching, does it apply to me? And when I put this teaching into practice, what are the benefits? What happens? Does it lead to skillful actions and skillful states of mind, wholesome ways of being? Or does it lead to more suffering and unskillful actions? So it's a, you know, this practice is a great one for skeptics because we're constantly being asked to look for ourselves. Does this work for you? How do you put this into practice? There's a Chinese saying, great doubt, great enlightenment. Small doubt, small enlightenment. No doubt, no enlightenment. You can read that last one two, two ways, too. And then there's that paralyzing doubt, that, that, that one that actually doesn't help us uh, to understand the teachings or to practice. It, it, it actually holds us back. It prevents us from committing. It, the Buddha likened it to being at a crossroads where we don't know, should I go this way? Should I go that way? Is this better? Is that better? What about this? Maybe I should do some of that. We probably all know that experience about, you know, what should I practice? Too much, too little, you know, now, later, in the morning, in the evening, you know, we can make so many questions about this. And we can doubt the practice. You know, what's the point of being with the breath? You know, what's that got to do with anything? We can doubt the teachers. What do those guys know anyway? You know, who do they think they are? And the teachings, you know, this is just so wordy or there's so much, you know, this or there's too much suffering in this teaching. You know, I don't know about this. And then we can doubt ourselves. And that's often the most challenging because once we start to doubt ourselves, we can really become quite lost. You know, it's like Sylvia's cartoon that she mentioned on the first night, the guy with the cell phone going, I don't think this is doing anything for me, you know, and there are all these reasons, you know. I'm too slow, I'm too dull, I'm too sleepy, I'm too angry, I'm too fearful, I'm too timid, I'm not, you know, wise enough, I don't understand enough, I can't do this, everyone else can do this, except me, it's like all the rest of my life, I can't do this, I'm a fail, you know, it just can go on and on and on, and we can just tell ourselves this story about who we are and our experience, and it can be endless, and it doesn't actually get us anywhere. So when doubt arises, as it probably will do at some point or another, really important to use the practice, to know that that's what our experience is, that doubt is actually present. Oh, this is doubt. You know, this is what's happening to me. And it can be just like a light bulb going on. Oh, that's what this experience is. Before we tumble into the identification with it, we can see it for what it is. We can start to look at the stream of words or images that go with it, the sensations in the body. And once we start to practice in it, again, it doesn't have such a hold over us. We don't have to buy into it as completely. And we can reconnect to our original intention, our motivation for practice, for coming on retreat, and just touch back into that. Outside of retreat, we can talk to friends when doubts arise. You know, we can use the wisdom of others to help us. Here on retreat, we can talk to the teachers. And really, it's very helpful to talk about doubt when it's, when it's up because um, it's a very challenging and difficult place to be. So how to work with all of these hindrances? As I've said for most of them, the first and the most important step is to be aware of them, is to know that they're present, 
And once we're there, once we know they're present, all sorts of other avenues open up to us. Without that awareness, we're lost, we're caught, we're identified, you know, we're often overwhelmed by them. Because unless we see how they're coloring our view of the world, they become this filter that distorts everything we see and feel and experience, our relationship to ourselves and everything around us. And we don't know what's going on, we're, we're, we're lost, we're caught. Again, on another long retreat I was on, um, I remember about two months in, so I was quite mindful, um, you know, really being with everything that I was noticing in my experience, you know, lifting, moving, placing, reaching, stepping, breathing, whatever was going on, and coming down to lunch one day. And the lunch at this retreat was nowhere near, or the food at this retreat was nowhere near as good as what we're getting on this retreat, you know. So I was expecting something like steamed tofu and rutabagas, which was pretty common to have for lunch at this retreat. And I walked in very mindfully to the lunchroom, and there on the back table was what seemed like buckets and buckets of Ben and Jerry's ice cream (laughs) that some yogi had donated, you know, Apparently, it's a little bit of a tradition. When someone has a birthday, they'll ask the cooks to buy all of this ice cream. And I can remember, you know, my eyes just widening. You know, this was like heaven to me, you know, after all of these very, very simple meals. Remember, I hadn't bought any chocolate on this retreat. So all of this ice cream. But, of course, I had to get my meal first. You know, you can't eat the ice cream first. So I had to go to the f- beginning of the food line. And, you know, there I was very mindfully because I was moving quite slowly at this stage. You know, looking, seeing, you know, reaching, lifting. And then, you know, I could feel this attraction. And then my mind started to, you know, at the same time as I was being very mindful of the physical movements, this chain of thought started going on. All of that ice cream. I'm always very slow eating. Everyone will have eaten it before I get there. And then I'm on the second lunch. It's been out there for half an hour. It's melting. Why didn't the staff put it in the refrigerator or put out ice so it doesn't melt? I'm going to get there. It's all going to be gone. It's going to be soup. I won't be able to, you know, and I'm going lifting. And and this background of, of mind states just going on and on. And I finally get there. There's some left. You know, it's not melted. I'm sort of ice cream, ice cream. Then I take it back to my plate. Place. And of course, I have to eat my meal first with this ice cream sitting there melting. So I'm being very mindful lifting. And then again, these thoughts are going, it's melting, it's melting. <laughs> Trying to be mindful again, you know, berating the cooks for not having put it in refrigerated so I'd have good ice cream. Finally, I get to eat the ice cream. And it's, oh, you know, I'm even, then I'm a little more unpleasant. This is very pleasant. You know. <laughs> this is why, now, you know, I, thought, I remember thinking, this is why I liked ice cream. You know, I, I'd so forgotten, you know, two months, you forget what ice cream tastes like. It tasted very good. Over, I sort of walk out, and it was almost a relief to finish because it had been such a tumult of um, thoughts and feelings. But I, you know, walked out lifting, moving, placing very mindfully. And then the next morning in the meditation hall, you know, in the question and answer period, uh, someone put their hand up and said, you know, I thought I was doing pretty well with my equanimity until I put the ice cream out. <laughs> and he started talking about all of the mind states that he went through about the ice cream. And I sort of went, you know, and I remembered this slew of mind states that I had 
that I had not paid any attention to. I had been so identified and caught up with them. I was going, you know, mindfully lifting and looking and seeing, but the mind states of aversion and greed and criticism, they were just flying by and I was completely hanging in there with them. You know, I was identified. It was such a wake-up call to me about how I thought I was being quite mindful, how I thought I was being with my process. And yet here was, you know, one sort of big um, set of influences or, you know, a situation in, a, in the quietness of a retreat. It was quite an extreme thing. And I wasn't aware of, at all of all of these mind states of aversion and wanting and greed going through my mind. And it just really deepened my practice because I thought you have to be very mindful in this stuff or else, you know, you get lost in it. It was a real wake-up call for me. So our basic strategy is to be aware of them, please. That's the start. And then we don't suppress them, we don't deny them, but we also don't have to act out them. We have to just be mindful of them. We don't ignore them. We make them the object of our meditation. We're aware of the thoughts, the images, the story that goes with them, the mood or the flavor, the coloring of the mind, the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You know, if only I'd cottoned onto that, I might have had a, been mindful of it a little earlier. Um, we feel them in the body. You know, when we start to open up our mindfulness to include um, the body, we're aware of how these states affect us. The contractions, the tense, tensing, the heat, the warmth, the, the movement of energy in the body, we're aware of it. And we accept it as our current experience. We investigate it. You know, what is this? How do I experience it? What's actually going on here? You know, the tightness, the heaviness, the tingling. And, but mindfulness is often the only antidote that we need. Bhante Gunaratna, in his book, Mindfulness in Plain English, said, those, those things that we call the hindrances or defilements are more than just unpleasant mental habits. They are the primary manifestations of the ego process itself. The ego sense itself is essentially a feeling of separation, a feeling of distance between that which we call me and that which we call other. This perception is held in place only if it is constantly exercised and the hindrances constitute that exercise. Greed and lust are attempts to get some of that for me. Hatred and aversion are attempts to place greater distance between me and that. All the defilements depend upon the perception of a barrier between self and other, and all of them foster this perception every time they are exercised. Mindfulness perceives things deeply and with great clarity. It brings our attention to the root of the defilements and lays bare their mechanism. It sees their fruits and their effects upon us. It cannot be fooled. Once you have clearly seen what greed really is and what it really does to you and to others, you just naturally cease to engage in it. When a child burns his hand on a hot oven, you don't have to tell him to pull it back. He does it naturally, without conscious thought and without decision. There is a reflex action built into the nervous system for just that purpose and it works faster than thought. Mindfulness works in this very much the same way. It is wordless, spontaneous, and utterly efficient. 
Clear mindfulness inhibits the growth of the hindrances. Continuous mindfulness extinguishes them. Thus, as genuine genuine mindfulness is built up, the walls of the ego itself are broken down. Craving diminishes. Defensiveness and rigidity lessen. You become more open, accepting, and flexible. You learn to share your loving-kindness. We can actually deliberately cultivate the opposites of the hindrances. For greed, we can cultivate generosity and renunciation. For anger, kindness and metta. For restlessness, calm, peace and concentration. And for sleepiness, interest, energy and investigation. And for doubt, we can cultivate faith. But sometimes we just need to be a little kinder to ourselves. We just need to show a little compassion and a little understanding and find refuge in those places that we do find refuge, um, that are a safety for us. And we have to learn, know that these are the places where we learn and we grow, even though they're so difficult, what we call the dark night of the soul. Because in the beginning, or in fact throughout much of our practice, we spend much of our time working with or even being overwhelmed by these forces, these hindrances. So we have to learn not to see them as obstacles, but to actually see that they are where our practice is. They are where we're needing to pay attention. And then the sense of struggle around them can diminish. They're actually part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And Sylvia spoke on the Satipatthana Sutta, the the four foundations of mindfulness. The fourth foundation is that of dhammas, the principles, the teachings of the Buddha. And it's one of the places he directed us to pay attention, to know whether they're present, to know what feeds them, and to know what leads to their lessening, their abandonment, their reduction. The final step sometimes can simply just be letting them be, just having some long, enduring mind of knowing that this is our experience and all the best efforts and intentions and antidotes and struggles are actually not making any difference. They're just here and we have to be accepting of that. Because the point of our meditation is not to be in conflict or to struggle with these experiences, but to learn to open to them as best we can, as clearly as we can. And so we can just sometimes come back to something neutral, like the breath, and just allow the experience to be there. Because freedom is not about getting rid of these states. It's not about achieving some static place where they don't exist. Because if that's how we were trying to define our happiness by this special state where these experiences didn't happen, it would be very precarious. It would be very temporary. But freedom comes from learning to understand them, to learning to see how they affect us, how they operate, what they are, seeing their true nature. And then we can find freedom and contentment right here and right now, whatever our experience is, whatever is going on for us. I'd like to finish by reading a poem, a prayer actually, of thanks for the process of awakening to our difficulties, for awakening to an opening to the truth of our lives and the joy that can come when we're willing to be with the struggle that we so often have to face. It's from one of my favorite philosophers, Michael Lunig. He's actually a cartoonist. 
With struggle, we grow weary. We struggle, we grow weary, we grow tired. We are exhausted, we are distressed, we despair. We give up, we fall down, we let go. We cry, we are empty, we grow calm. We are ready, we sit quietly. A small, shy truth arrives, arrives from within and without, arrives and is born, simple, steady, clear, like a mirror, like a bell, like a flame, like rain in summer. A precious truth arrives and is born within us, within our emptiness. We accept it, we observe it, we absorb it, We surrender to our bare truth. We are nourished. We are changed. We are blessed. We rise up. For this, we give thanks. So I thought that was appropriate for this Thanksgiving Eve to be able to give thanks for our hindrances and to know them for what they are and to find the freedom that's there to be found in any moment. So let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for your attention. If the bell ring, you could just ring the bell uh, maybe five minutes later for the next sitting. And we'll be back here for sitting and chanting sheets on the table outside. So pick one up uh, on your way in. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.